Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Today we're going to talk about how the law relates to Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about civil law, like uh, the speed limit and things like that. I'm talking about the law in God's Bible. The commandments, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words are part of that law. And if we don't get this right, if we don't understand how the law relates to Jesus, we're going to do a lot of damage. We're going to do a lot of damage to ourselves. And we're going to do a lot of damage to the people that we influence. Now, before I explain what I mean exactly by that statement, let's talk about the law. Let's journey back in time. 3,500 years ago, we're wandering around in the wilderness with hundreds of thousands of our closest friends. And God brings us to the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai. And we've got no land, we've got no homes, we don't know where we're going, we have no national identity, and there's a rumor going around that God is going to make us into a kingdom of priests. That's a weird statement. That's what Moses says in Exodus. He's going to make us into a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? When I think of priests today, I think of a guy wearing a, a black shirt, collared shirt with one of those white squares right here. That's not what he was talking about. To understand priest, we have to think of someone who brings the purity, the goodness, the perfection, the moral excellence, the love, the goodness of God into every room that we enter. The goodness of God into every relationship. That's a priest. And God had to plan to make these people with no national identity into a kingdom of people like that. A kingdom of individuals who are bringing pure goodness into the world, reflecting God's perfection. So after a few days of standing at the foot of the mountain and being told not to touch the mountain or we will die, being told how to prepare for some type of crazy encounter with God himself, we wake up one morning to the sound of a trumpet blast. And it's thundering, and it's lightning, and a thick cloud has settled on the mountain. And we're all standing at the foot of the mountain that's wrapped in smoke because God himself has descended from heaven to earth in fire. And the mountain in front of us begins to tremble. And the Lord calls Moses to the top of the mountain. Here we go. And Moses begins to climb the mountain. And God begins to lay out for Moses specific ways that we as a community of people will be distinct and different from any other nation, any other culture, any other community of people on the face of the earth. That's the law. It's God's prescribed way of living differently than others who are not in his kingdom, who are not a part of his 
family. And as we're thinking about today, I want us to focus on the character part of the law. The ways that we're supposed to live with integrity and purity and goodness and holiness and the ways that we're supposed to treat others with the heart of our character ethic being love. Now, some people have looked at this Old Testament law, which is all just a ton of very specific commandments that starts with 10 words. The, the, the word commandment is actually not written in, it's not in Hebrew, it's, it's just words. So that we call them the 10 commandments, but it's actually 10 words from God. Some people have divided all of this law that we see in the Old Testament into three categories, um, moral, ceremonial, and civil. And those are okay ways to understand them. I think the early church would not have put it in such neat categories, but they're kind of helpful to think about now. There's a little debate about those three words, but we can think of it in terms of the moral law. We're going to focus on the moral law today. We'll use it because it's kind of easy to understand So how are we supposed to relate to God's commandments that tell us how to live morally different than others? If you visit a church today and the pastor hasn't done his homework on how we're supposed to relate to the law, you're probably thinking as you're listening to him preach, as I have before, why are you yelling at me? Someone who doesn't understand the law, you begin to think that a fruit of the Spirit is anger. Like, if a person hasn't done his homework on how the law relates to us today through the gospel, through Christ, through this new way of relating to God, this new covenant, you don't think, you don't see the fruit of love and joy and peace in them. You begin to wonder if grumpiness is a fruit of the Spirit, or being mean is a fruit of the Spirit, or being a know-it-all is a fruit of the Spirit, or being prideful is a fruit of the Spirit. And I could go on and on and on and on about people that have messed this up for others. What I'm saying is there's an enormous, this is a weighty message for me. I feel a little bit more sober today because it's a heavy message and we've got to get this right. If we're going to get the rest of the Sermon on the Mount right, if we're going to get the rest of the sermons ever taught here at Southside right, we have to understand this. And it's tough. This is probably the toughest passage I have ever preached. It's really complicated. And nobody knows exactly what's happening here, but we've got some good ideas that We know at least these things are happening, and that's all I'm going to talk about today. If I don't get it right, I could really mess you guys up. I take that very seriously. I could really mess up my own faith. I had a seminary professor, when he was talking about the law, once say to us in the class, I'm teaching you things that could turn you into a monster. He's right. I don't enjoy teaching the law apart from the gospel. Give me the gospel and we can talk about this. But it always has to be tied to the gospel. So, how the law relates to Jesus and thus how we are supposed to relate to the law has been a controversy forever. Uh, In 1645, Edward Fisher wrote this amazing book called The Marrow of Modern Divinity. I had to read this book, and actually, I shouldn't say I had to, I enjoyed it. It's a really, really good book, and it's about this debate about the law that's been happening since Jesus was on earth. He was clashing with people who were not teaching the law correctly. This book, The Marrow of Modern Divinity, has four characters. It's an ongoing conversation between a pastor, a new Christian, a legalist, 
who thinks you have to obey everything that the law says in your own power and adds to it and makes it more difficult even, and an antinomian, which simply means someone that thinks that God's so good you don't even have to worry about the law. You can just do whatever you want. His grace is going to cover it. So it's this debate between these four types of people and the, the pastors helping this new Christian kind of understand how you walk in the tension of law and grace. How grace empowers you to live the requirements of the law with God's energy inside of you. And this book was a major controversy. Uh, in fact, in a guy named Thomas Boston, who was a pastor back then, he was in one of the people's houses of the people that went to his church and he saw this like sitting on the windowsill this book and he grabbed it and he started reading he's like oh my goodness this is amazing he started passing around to all of his pastor buddies and they were like learning things about this and enjoying it and it got so popular that it was it was brought before the governing board of the church of scotland and it was actually banned in scotland and that ban has never been lifted technically so i got to read a book that's been banned in the church in scotland for 300 years you should want to read it for that alone. So what I want to do is we're going to, I'm going to start by going through a situation that Jesus instructs us by the way that he acts, and then we're going to walk through Matthew 5, 17 through 20. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 8. Uh, we've talked about this passage several times, but it's, it's an important passage John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have your Bibles, you can, you can just listen. This is a situation where people that we could call legalists of that day caught someone breaking God's law, breaking one of the commandments. And so they bring this person, in the act of breaking this commandment, they bring her in front of Jesus and, and they're mean and they're trying to humiliate her and we're going to see how Jesus deals with people who are condemning someone else for breaking the law this is really important because he's a pretty good example of how we should act so let's see what he let's see what he does here John 8 verses 1 through 11 they went each to his own house but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning he came again to the temple all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses commanded, the, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So they they're jerks. They bring this lady, they're humiliating her, they put her in the midst of Jesus' teaching people who are curious about the kingdom, they put this lady in the midst of them, and they know Jesus is compassionate. They know he's not going to have it. They know he's going to be like, no, we're not, you don't get to do that. So they're, they're using this because of his compassion, they want to trap him because they want to prosecute him. For breaking the, the religious law. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Hmm. What do you suppose he's doing there? 
He's talking to people who are condemning this woman because she broke the, one of the commandments. And he begins to write on the ground. What other place in the Bible does God write on dirt or earth or rock or stone with his finger? The Ten Commandments. Now, I don't know this for sure. I'm assuming that he's writing out commandments in the dirt that the people who are accusing this lady have broken themselves. So, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, um, looking at the commandments, looking at the people, tell you what, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So I like that it said beginning with the older ones, because sometimes us older guys see things first and are more keenly aware of our own failures. Not always, but sometimes. So the older ones are like the young guys are ready. They got the rocks. They're ready to carry out this, you know, the death penalty. And the older ones are looking at Jesus writing on, and they're recognizing, they're looking around, they're looking at themselves, they're seeing, yeah, guys, we're done here. Just because everyone's going to find out what we did in a minute. So we got to get out of here. We'll come back another time. And Jesus is alone with this woman. This is so precious. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. The order is important. He didn't tell her to stop sinning and then I won't condemn you. He said, I'm taking you as you are right now. I don't condemn you as you are right now. And because of that, out of the safety of my love, go and sin no more. Now, he wasn't saying that she he wasn't expecting her to go and be perfect from that point on, never making another mistake. That's not the point. The point is, you're mine now. And you can begin acting differently because of it. The other thing I want you to notice about that, he says, go and sin no more. From now on, sin no more. This is really important. Whatever Jesus commands, he enables. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, he gives you the capacity and the power to do that. See, Peter was onto this. Because one day, Peter was in a boat with his disciples. Jesus was praying. They were trying to get somewhere, but getting nowhere because the wind was opposing them as they were rowing. And they see Jesus walking on the water. He's literally walking on the water, and he's just going to walk right past them. And Peter sees it. And Peter knows that if Jesus commands me to do something, he gives me the, the power to do it. And what does he say? He's walking on water. Jesus, Lord, if that's you, command me to come out to you. You know what Peter's doing? He wants to walk on water. 
And he knows if I can get Jesus to command me to come to him, then I'll have the capacity to walk on water because he's not going to tell me to do something I can't do in his power. So what did Jesus do? He, sure, I'll play. I'll bite. Come on out. And Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking on water. And sure, he forgets for a minute who's sustaining his ability to do this because he's looking at the waves and stuff. But he was, for goodness sake, he was walking on water. None of us have done that, probably. The problem with the law is it tells you how to live, but it doesn't give you the power to live that way. If you add the gospel, if you add Jesus, now the law tells you how to live, and God gives you the spirit to enable you to live that way. That's important. Okay, so keeping that in mind, let's look at Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And it's in your notes, and I have some fun fill in the blanks for you guys today. I am such a pastor geek. 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is Jesus talking. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's three things I want us to take away from this passage. One, is Jesus fulfilled what the law foreshadowed? And that's your first blame. Jesus fulfilled what the law foreshadowed. He did this in three ways. One is through his life. Michael Ramsey, who's a former Archbishop of Canterbury, that's, that's an amazing title. Isn't that a cool title? The Archbishop of Canterbury. He said, God is Christ-like and in him there is no unchristlikeness." God is Christ-like, and in him there is no unchristlikeness. That means if you've ever been curious what God is like, in very specific and particular ways, all you have to do is look at Jesus. Because God is Christ-like, and in him there is no unchristlikeness. That means whatever assumptions you have about God or what it looks like to live according to the law or how to deal with people who break the law or how to deal with yourself when you break the law, if you have any assumptions of what that looks like, you should always hold those assumptions up to Jesus because we have this weird idea that the Father and Jesus are a little bit different. The Father and Jesus are the same, and if that's not true, then I quit. <laughs> Because that is the point. We see God in Jesus. The disciples are like, what's the Father like? Jesus is like, you've seen the Father. It's me. So we have no legs to stand on when we start having a little bit of a legalistic attitude about the law. Because we're not holier than Jesus. We might think we are sometimes, but Jesus is actually holier than us. 
And so we look at how we relate to the law according to how he did. All right, he also fulfilled the law, what the law foreshadowed through his death. So remember what the religious leaders said about the woman caught in adultery. They said, according to the law of Moses, she deserved the death penalty. That's a complicated thing, but here's what we need to know. Um, All sin deserves the death penalty. Every sin. When we sin, somebody has to die. That's just the truth. The good news is Jesus fulfilled the death penalty for everybody who's ever lived. We do deserve the death penalty. Hence the cross. Jesus did it for us. Jesus fulfilled the law, what the law foreshadowed also through his followers. Uh, why did Jesus die for us? Jesus died for us so that when the Father looks at us, he sees us through the lens of Jesus' perfection. In other words, when it comes to deciding if you can be a part of his family or not, when God looks at you and you put your faith in Christ, he sees the moral perfection of Christ. Because Jesus said, I'll take on all their sins so that, Father, for a moment, you're going to forsake me. Because you're going to look at me, you're going to see all the sins, all the filth of the world, so that one day when you look at them, you're going to see all the moral perfection and beauty of me for those who put their faith in Christ. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. He was perfect in every way, never sinned. In the Father, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We should never get over that. For, I mean, for all eternity, we should, be, we should stand amazed in his presence because of that one fact. Now, there's other good stuff that comes along with the gospel, other good benefits that we receive from Christ, but if that was it, come on. That's more than enough. All right. Number two, Jesus expanded what the law required. Jesus expanded what the law required. So we'll be talking a lot about this. In fact, the, the Sermon on the Mount for the next few weeks, we're going to, have, we're going to look at case studies of why this is true, how God took the law that they understood and unfolded it, Jesus unfolded it in his teaching at a deeper level. And he wasn't replacing the commandments. He wasn't replacing the moral law of the Old Testament. He wasn't doing away with it. He was unfolding it. He was unpacking it at deeper levels. He was uprooting it so you can see the roots of those laws. He was getting to the heart of the law and the spirit of the law rather than the wooden surface level obedience which was being practiced back then. He was saying it's not enough that you don't kill somebody. That's good. Most of us could probably get through life without killing somebody. That's a good thing. But Jesus is saying actually let's get to the root of that. If you're angry, frustrated, annoyed, that's actually, that disqualifies you too. You deserve the death penalty for that too. You deserve separation from the Father for that too. So Jesus expanded what the law required. And again, we're not spending a lot of time on that now because we're going to be talking a lot about that in the next few weeks. All right, three, Jesus accomplished what the law couldn't. Jesus accomplished what the law couldn't. Here at Southside, 
We believe that the most important thing about your life is who you're becoming. And the Sermon on the Mount is intended to help you become a person whose moral character is stunning. A person whose very character puts on display the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the kindness of God, the gentleness of God. And if for the rest of your life you are becoming the type of person described in the Sermon on the Mount, your life will have more impact than if you got a perfect score on the SAT. If you're becoming the type of person described in the Sermon on the Mount, your life will have more impact than being the CEO of a major company. Your life will have more impact than being and sitting on the Supreme Court. In other words, God can drop you anywhere in the world, in any situation, with any amount of resources or lack of resources, and those will have no implication on the force and the power of your life in the kingdom. He doesn't need it. He'll use it. And there are people in this building who have resources that are using it for the kingdom, and you're on to something. But if you don't have it, he doesn't need it. Your life can have gravity and force as you are. The one thing that matters to have a consequential life is who you are becoming in Christ. So that's where we should put most of our energy. And how is that accomplished? All right. Let's take a little bit of a breather. Roll your neck out a little bit because I'm going to get heavy for just a second. All right. Not like heavy like mean or scary, but heavy as this is some, this is some thought-provoking stuff, and I want you to catch this a little bit, okay? So I'm going to give you five seconds to just daydream and then come back into the room, okay? So ready? Go. All right. Anybody else need to yawn? I heard it. I'm not looking over there, but anybody else need to do that? <laughs> do what you got to do. You need to step. Okay. We ready? All right. This is a simple statement, but it gets a little weird. God supplies us with power to change through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we're talking about how do we apply, how do we be transformed, how do we change, how do we look at this, these impossible ethics of the Sermon on the Mount and actually become the type of person it's describing. God supplies us with power to change through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, how this happens is a mystery. The church has been trying to figure it out forever. And actually, Acts 10 through 15, the church is like trying to keep up with the Holy Spirit's doing, and they're not really sure what he's up to, and there's a little bit of confusion. They have to have some counsels about it. They're not sure, why are you including these people? In the, it's confusing. When the Holy Spirit begins to work, there's some debates that happen around it. We're not really sure how this happens, that the Holy Spirit actually makes you more like Jesus, but it happens. Specifically, we know that when you mix God's word with the Holy Spirit, things begin to change. Sometimes I like just listening to really neat pastors that can, I don't know, there's something about the way that they talk and keep a crowd with them, and they'll say things like, you didn't hear me. Y'all didn't hear me on that. And I wanted to say that so bad, but then I, I felt like you'd think I was trying to imitate one of them. But you got to hear that. This is really, really important here. 
When you mix God's word with the Holy Spirit, things begin to change. And if you don't remember anything else from that, you've got to remember this truth and keep it with you for the rest of your life. When you mix God's word with the Holy Spirit, things begin to change. You know when you do that little volcano thing with everyone does this in school, you mix the, is it baking soda and vinegar? I think it's baking soda and vinegar, right? And it makes, has this chemical reaction, it becomes something different. Um, it's like mixing gasoline and fire. You have a little flame and you have a big thing of gasoline, you pour it out and something happens. It, it gets bigger and hotter and more energy coming at you. There's something happens when you mix these things. When you mix God's word and the Holy Spirit, things begin to change. Okay, here's where it gets weird. Are you ready? This is where it gets weird. I want you to go back to the very beginning of creation. This is Genesis 1-2. What's happening in Genesis 1-2? The second verse of the Bible. This is before creation. Do you remember what's happening? The Spirit of God is hovering over primordial Waters just means before creation. It's dark, it's deep, it's chaotic. There's no order in the universe. There's just these waters, according to Genesis 1-2. And it says the Spirit of God is just hovering, waiting. What's the Spirit of God waiting for? God's Word. He's waiting for God to speak. And so he hears in some mysterious way that the Trinity is three but one. He hears the voice of God, let there be light. Now you have the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and what happens? Things change. Things come into existence that weren't there before. The Spirit went to work when the words of God were spoken. Now, stay with that thought. In the same way that God's Word and the Holy Spirit work together in creation, they are working together today in new creation. So you have the Spirit of God hovering over nothingness. And then you have the Word of God spoken. And animals come into existence. Things that weren't there before come into existence. Order comes into existence. Land comes into existence. In the same way that the Spirit woke, worked in creation, He works in new creation when the Word of God is heard. What's new creation? What's new creation today? How is the Holy Spirit at work with the Word of God today if He's working that way in new creation? Does anybody know 2 Corinthians 5.17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Which means when you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you put your faith in Christ, you surrender your life and make Jesus the king of your life and say, I can't save myself, I need him. Somehow he took the death penalty for me on the cross. Somehow he was raised back to life. Somehow he's alive still today as king of the universe on a throne somewhere that I don't know where. Somehow his spirit comes down and lives inside of me so that when I mix the spirit of God living in me with the word of God, things begin to change inside of me in a way that I can't explain. You get nicer. 
you get more patient. And you don't need to understand how it works. You just need to know that it works. So here's my challenge for you guys. The Sermon on the Mount is worthy of a lifetime of reflection. A lifetime of reflection. It's one of the passages that we should revisit frequently. We should become intimately familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7. You should dip into it frequently. And sometimes we listen to a message and, you know, when I listen to a message sometimes I think I have a hard time understanding it or I'm not really sure what to do with it. Um, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do with this message. This is what I want you to do. So if you're wondering, yeah, all that's really interesting and that's kind of neat, but I don't know how I'm supposed to apply that to my life, I want to tell you right now what you should do with this. And, and there's a weird thing that happens when we, we get to an application point in sermon. We think to ourselves, that would be really cool, but actually 99% of us, including me, don't do anything with it. I used to say to the youth group when I was a youth pastor, I'm going to tell you what to do and one of you is going to do it. That's just the way that it is. I get it. And that was usually about the right ratio. If there was 50 kids in the room, maybe a couple of them would do it. Please do this. Don't just think it's a good idea. If it doesn't get in your calendar, it won't happen. Figure out a way immediately to get this in your calendar and start making a part of the rhythm of your life. And that is this. Throughout this sermon, throughout this series, I want you to find somewhere that is comfortable, that's actually inspiring. Maybe it's a bench in Worcester Memorial Park that nobody ever walks by. Well, good luck finding that, but there's a few. Maybe it's a coffee shop where you're not going to see anyone that you know in Worcester because everybody that you know in Worcester, when you open up the Bible and you want to spend alone time with God, I promise you, everybody that you know will want to come hang out with you. Find somewhere that nobody's going to know you're there. Find somewhere that is, you're not going to get interrupted. It's inspiring. It's beautiful. It's fun to be there. And I want you to get out your Bible and a journal and start reading through slowly, prayerfully, the Sermon on the Mount. And start by saying, God, um, I believe you speak to me through this word. I don't know how that works. I'm open to new ideas about you. I'm open to new thoughts about you. I'm open to you telling me where things need to be different in my life. Just sit there quietly for a little while and start reading slowly, very slowly. And note things as you're reading that have some energy to them that stand out a little bit. I mean, really, seriously, do this and begin to journal it out, to think through it, and then go on a walk and pray about it. Okay, God, this came up. What are you, what are you doing here? What do you want to teach me? What do you want to show me? How can I give more of my life to you? How can I surrender more to you? Because as you begin to do this, you're activating word and spirit. And when you mix word and spirit, spirit things happen. I want to ask the music team to, to come up front now, and I'm going to ask everybody to stand and, and pray with me, if you will. Well, Lord, thank you that you don't require us to have our act together before coming to you. Man, who in this room could ever qualify for that? Nobody. 
We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of your glory. We've all screwed up. We've all hurt other people. We've all hurt people we love. We've all hurt ourselves. Every single one of us. And you invite us to come to you that way. I can't imagine what this woman must have been feeling like. Are you hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Yeah. And I feel that way too sometimes. And you don't require us to change, to come to you. You invite us as we are. And then you give us your spirit. And then you give us your word. And we become new people. And we don't understand it. But we rest in it. Would you accomplish that for us? Even now, open our eyes to new layers of your mercy, your kindness, where we've been damaged by people who should not be standing behind a pulpit. Would you heal us of those things? Jesus, would you show us who you are? Would you show us your character, your mercy, your love? It's irresistible. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.